Today's message is called Compound Interest. Compound Interest. Compound Interest. Um, I've been uh, reading a, uh, a book and I came across this um, I, I came across this and, and I want to share it with you. We keep expecting the kingdom to flow out of heaven instead of flowing out through us. Many Christians are waiting for a revival to strike or the glory cloud to settle over a region and zap people. They think that's how the kingdom will come. Jesus revealed to his followers that the kingdom comes through stewardship. And the key to shaping the culture over cities is stewarding what you have in your pocket. And then he goes on and says this line, and I had to wrestle with this. Your destiny will always level off at the level of your financial stewardship. Your destiny will always level off at the level of your financial stewardship. Okay. I'm glad I've got the old brain now working. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. And Lord, we thank, we're thankful for the words that you have placed upon this church, the people, the family in which you've gathered together in this place that call Awakening Church their church home. Lord, you haven't designed it to fail. Lord, you've designed it to accomplish the task of bringing the kingdom to earth. So Lord, we desire to be instruments in your hand. Lord, would you use us, fulfill in us the will and the extension of your kingdom. Lord, we ask this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Um, in this series, we've been discussing kingdom finances. Why? Because our, when our money is in disorder, our heart can never be whole. As I've said before, if money wasn't the way Jesus revealed your heart to you, we might not talk about it so much. But in this series, we've made a big distinction between giving and generosity. Giving is the practice. Generosity is the motivation of the heart. Our heart is limited by the capacity of our generosity. You might want, you might want to be loving, but you cannot love beyond what you give. Let me say that again. You might want to be loving, but you cannot love beyond what you give. So how do you cultivate a generous spirit? We talked about the necessity of trust. My first attempt at this topic. Before we're able to be generous, we need to trust. 
Do we truly trust God with our wealth or do we only trust ourselves? Then Wes preached about the counterculture call Jesus asks of us. Only in the practice of giving can, can it free us from anxiety and our consumeristic age. Then we talked about how the power of communal giving, a culture of generosity, reshapes cities. Today we're going to talk about the practice of giving. How do you, how do you and I structure our life to serve our spirit of generosity? Compound interest. What does it mean? Well, compound interest has been called the eighth wonder of the world. Quotes about it and its greatness have been attributed to Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, though these quotes are most likely made up. But simply, compound interest is the way your resources can grow all by themselves. Compound interest is the added interest to any principal amount. Over time, your money grows over and over and over again. But only because you begin making money on your money. Most financial investments are tied to the concept of compound interest. Maybe not for you, but certainly for your broker. But compound interest is a costly investment because you have to have a vision and a structure for your resources that you have right now. You have to sacrifice today to build a resource for tomorrow. So how do we structure our lives to take advantage of the way the world actually works? You have the bank, you have people on YouTube, you have self-help gurus, and life coaches. All of can tell you how to make and keep more money. Structuring your life to earn more isn't precisely what we're aiming at today. If your love is limited by our generosity, then how do we actually love more? How do we structure our giving so we can increase our loving? Thank you for those two amens. <laughs> Many of you are sitting back going, oh, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. Oh, no. It's the big T word. Let's look at our text today. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a, ten, a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to make 
to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are, all, are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he is still in the loins of his successor when Melchizedek met him. Okay. Life and love flow out of giving. And structured giving leads to an abundant life. Life and love flow out of giving. To a certain extent, giving is a structure. And structured giving leads to an abundant life. You might think of yourself as a spontaneous person, but you eat, sleep, and even take trips to the washroom at roughly the same time. Structures and routines aren't bad things. Sure, sometimes they need to be changed, but structures, routines, and habits are disciplines we need if we mean to follow through with our intention. I can tell my wife how much I love her all I want, but if it doesn't follow through with some kind of structure, it ain't worth what, it's, what I said. And every wife in the room said, I don't love every wife in the room, but what I'm trying to say is, Okay, it's my little fupa for the day. <laughs> Structures may not give us life, but they're like our bones. They keep life in its proper place. If you think structure is unnecessary, imagine living without a rib cage. And to take it even further, you already have structure anyway. You have a way of dealing with your money. If you think about how you de deposit checks, how you pay bills, what you're willing to spend your money on, and where you're going to go when you're shopping, whether or not you can stick within a budget, what sorts of purchases you think are frivolous, especially when you see other people, people pur purchasing them. You will discover your own financial liturgy. If you want to see what you really care about, and you're brave enough to look just over your bank statements for the last six months, you will find out what you spent your money on. Now you're meddling. Forgive me. You ain't seen nothing yet. No, I'm just kidding. I got a joke with this. Please don't look at me soberly, okay? But it's easy to claim virtues we have, sorry, it's easy to claim virtues we have never had to measure. If we say we value something without ever checking in on it, we get the benefit of feeling good 
without any sort of sacrifice of doing good. Here's an example. Did you know that people radically overestimate the amount their government spends on foreign aid? In the U.S., foreign aid is 3% of the gross national income. In, in Canada, foreign aid is 0.27% of our gross national income. Canadians pride themselves on being generous, and many of them are, but we're also prone to overestimate our generosity. Just saying. Now, in the book of Hebrews, the author is trying to prove how the Christian faith does not have to be built upon the exclusive practices of the Jewish faith. What he's trying to do here is he's, he's setting the reader up. He is basically, it's a, a kind of... Um, I wouldn't say exegesis, but a very close to it of, of a systematic approach of arguing of Christ being superior of everything else. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to, which is the prophets. He's superior to the priesthood. He is superior to angels. So all the way through, and then he goes through the, the details of sacrificial system, and he, he points out just how good and complete the sacrifice of Christ was on the cross. So this author is giving historical grounds of even more inclusive Christianity that both includes Gentiles and prohibits temple sacrifices. Christians being persecuted were tempted to turn back to the old sacrificial system. The book of Hebrews establishes the sufficiency of Christ. But in order to do that, the book of Hebrews has to reframe an awful lot of Jewish customs. And in our text today, the thing being established here is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In order for Jesus to be the mediator between God and man, Jesus needs to be a priest. But he isn't born of the tribe of Levi, the traditional priesthood. If that's, so that's the case, how can Jesus offer sacrifices to God according to the Jewish custom? Well, the text explains that Jesus is a priest, but not according to Levi. He is a priest according to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Melchizedek is a strange Old Testament figure. He appears out of nowhere and he returns to nowhere, and his name means king of righteousness. When Abraham returns victorious from the battle, Melchizedek breaks bread and wine with Abraham. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of all his spoils of his, of his war. Abraham treats his foreign king of Salem as his priest, that is, the person who represents God to him. And he honors Melchizedek with a tithe of all of his increase. There's no law or rule stating that Abraham must do this at this point because it was before the law. He simply wants to honor the person who represents God to him. So before we get back to the text, let's talk about the T word. 
Tithing is a word that means a tenth. Tithing was commanded in the law for Abraham's descendants and Israelites. The Israelites, but they did not have just one tithe. They had a few tithes. Now, after I tell you about their tithes, I'm going to ask you how you feel about that. You're all going to look at me and smile and say, I feel much better in the new covenant than I would being a Jew back then. Just saying. So here's the point. Here's what they had to, here's what was commanded of them in the law. There was one, the first fruits offering in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 to 10. This wasn't a tithe, because a tithe is a tenth. But it was an offering that was the first of your increase. It was there to honor that, to honor God of what he has brought for that year. The second one was the priesthood, the sacred tithe, the tithe, the tenth. In Numbers chapter 10, Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 and 24. That was where they gave a tenth of what, God, what had come in and they gave it to God, to the priesthood. It was considered holy. It was sacred. Then there was the tithe of feasts. Okay, so you have an offering, you have a tenth, now you have another ten. Those are the feasts that they went through and they, come on, the Jewish people have a lot of feasts. You go through them. You can go through them. They're expensive. And then there's the tithe for the poor. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29, the other was the tithe of feasts is Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27. So what began as a pattern from Abraham was encoded into the law. Now, can I just give you a, a little bit of relevant information about what things are like today? The church today, did you know that tithers today in the, in the 21st century make up only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation? Only 5% of the U.S. tithes, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. Christians are not, not only are giving at 2.5% per capita, while during the Great Depression they gave 3.3%. You see where I'm getting, what I'm getting at? I'm going to leave you with that moment, and I'm just going to carry on, and we'll come back. Let's talk about the first fruits offering. The first fruits offering was a sacred offering of thankfulness that sanctified everything else. It was the very first. It was the smallest portion. Think of, about the first bundle of grain from the whole field. Think about the first basket of apples from the orchard. It was symbolic. 
and Sacramento. It was also a quarter tithe of roughly 2.5% according to the rabbi definition. Strangely, uh, this kind of tithe is the, the one most mentioned in the New Covenant. Jesus is the first fruits of those raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. The Holy Spirit is the first fruit of heaven. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. And believers are the first fruits of the world of being saved in James chapter 1, verse 18. The goal and the meaning of the law has been carried into Jesus' new covenant community. We are to give financially as a way of giving thanks and as a way of growing in thankfulness. Let me say that again. The goal and the meaning of the law has been carried into Jesus' new covenant community and we are to give financially as a way of giving thanks and a way of growing in thankfulness. It's hard to give thanks without a little bit of monetary value to it. The priestly tithe. The tithe is the, this is the tithe many people are familiar with when the Israelites were commanded to bring the tithes into the storehouse. There wasn't actually some national warehouse where they put their money into. Instead, this tithe was to look after the priests. They couldn't harvest crops or raise cattle because of their duties to the temple. Their livelihood was dependent on God and others. In the New Covenant, believers are called to look after those who minister on behalf of God to them. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. We do not have a specific priesthood. In Jesus, we are all called to be priests. But we are called to represent God to others and to represent others to God in our prayers. But the goal and the meaning of the law has been carried into Jesus' new covenant community. We are to take financial responsibility for those who represent God to us. You might not think of yourself as having a priest, uh, but let me ask you, who do you call when you're in a crisis? It isn't the mayor. <laughs> the church is not your storehouse, but the church equips and empowers other, others to be your storehouse. So here's a moment of truth. Many people make withdrawals from their pastors without considering covering the cost of such a ministry. I could jump off on there, but... <laughs> you see, that's one of the main reasons that Paul wrote the book of Corinthians. Paul, Paul's critics were telling the Corinthian church, he's just out for your money. 
And Paul was responding to them and saying, I didn't serve you for money, but I need money to live, and I'm not dishonoring God by receiving it. So let me be clear. Ministry is not transactional. You pay me and I get to come to your place when you're in a crisis. You can receive counseling. You can receive help with meals and bills and prayer ministry and hospital visitations, etc. You will never receive a bill for that. But the mark of financial maturity for the believer is to help take care of the people who are helping take care of you. The tithe of feasts. God required Israel to celebrate. Just think about that. A culture, a nation being forced to take a holiday. There were far more feasts for the Israelites than fasts. But celebration was a part of God's sacred calling. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9. But throwing a party always costs you something. You have to get the meats and the cheeses. You have to get the sparkling water. You have to have the right balloon budget. If celebrating God and looking after your family is a priority, you're going to have to set some money aside for it. We never think, at least Barb and I, we made birthdays a big deal. (laughs) Wonderful that my daughter is here today. She gets to hear me preach for one time, but I'm glad she's here. She, I don't, I, you know, I've refrained from trying to use her as an illustration, so I'll just embarrass her by the fact she's just here and I love her. But she's awesome. But we don't think anything of it to just do that for our kids. As a family, these feasts were continued to be observed by Jewish believers. In Jesus, they were not mandatory for Gentiles, but the practice of setting aside resources for your own blessing and celebration continues into the New Testament church. The goal and the meaning of the law has been carried into Jesus' new covenant community. We are to set aside some of our resources to take care of our family, to tend for our souls. That should have been an amen from the whole room. <laughs> Did you not hear me? Your mo- you are to set aside some of your money for yourself to celebrate, to enjoy life. Wait a minute. You guys don't agree with that? First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 is there, and third John chapter 1, verse 2. Then there's the tithe for the poor. God commanded Israel to have the stringent social security net for the poor, the widow and the foreigner. Not only were the debts to be forgiven every seven years, but all the slaves had to be free every 50 years. And the price of land had to be restored from inflation. The poor were free to pick the grain and to plow 
them plow what had been missed to provide for themselves. And on top of these different practices, every three years, the tithe of feasts was devoted to the marginalized people in society. These new followers of the way really took this concept of caring for the poor to a next level. They didn't submit it to the law's requirement. They went above and beyond it. Firstly, they made sure that nobody had any need among them by distributing and sharing resources. In a world of radical inequality, this set early Christian communities apart. The poor, the widow, and the foreigner could join this new community and be brought into financial security. That's Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Secondly, they made the caring for the needy one of the first priorities of the church in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Third, they made caring for the poor one of the principal markers of being formed by the love of Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, Acts 20, verse 35, James chapter 1, verse 27. It was almost as though the early church was one giant campaign against poverty. Remember, Jesus proclaimed the good news to the poor. The New Testament calling doesn't have a rule about caring for the poor. The New Testament, his entire culture was devoted to the poor. The goal and the meaning of the law that was carried into Jesus' new covenant community, it is our financial responsibility to make caring for the poor part of our regular giving. People might say, well, just how much should I give to the poor? Poor. They might regret asking that question. For the only time Jesus was asked this, he answered everything. (laughs) Maybe a better place to start would be by changing the question. Instead of asking, what am I required to give to the poor? Ask How many people in my life are struggling with lack and poverty? And then by begin doing as much as possibly can for those people. So how can we simplify these values down to tangible instructions for our lives? The giving habits of Israel are are interesting to Bible nerds, and of course, the early church was awesome at everything, but it does, what does it have to do with life right now? I'm going to tell you, because you asked. <laughs> we see a clear pattern of ritual giving throughout the whole Bible, from beginning to end. And the values of the Old Testament are established and refined through the church. When God brought Abraham into increase, it was his first instinct to worship God with a tenth of what he had. And we are not brought into Christ through the Levites, but through the promise of Abraham. People ask this question all the time. Are Christians required to tithe? Well, if you're looking for a bare minimum... You aren't really required to do much of anything. Jesus' only command was to love one another as I have loved you. That's his one command. But, and let me say, but, how we do make loving one another a structural priority in our finances, and is there a better person... 
pattern of giving than the one God has established. Regular tithes and offerings are not given to us as a rule by chapter and verse. Neither is worship, nor prayer, nor study of Scripture. Rather, we're invited, we are invited to find life in the values and include them in our everyday life. I want to clarify You are not under a closed heaven if you don't tithe. Jesus opened the heavens through his death and resurrection, not your tithe. You will be blessed when you follow the financial pattern and values we find throughout Scripture. This is because God is not going to be mocked. If you care about what he cares about, he'll make sure you have the resources to be a blessing to others. You will also be blessed if you do not, sorry, you will also be blessed if you do not tithe or give because God is a good father. He wants to meet your needs and bless you abundantly whether or not you do what is right. But that doesn't change what is right. If you align your life to his pattern, God can use your giving to amplify his blessings. If you keep your money to yourself and give only when you feel like it, you will still be blessed by God, but you will be the only one who knows it. Your spirit of generosity might not increase and your resources will not necessarily have the same impact. You need... You just need to know that you are made completely free to worship God with your finances. So, man, am I, I'm running, I'm in a good time. I'm coming down to the end. Let's go back to what I said. Is your destiny curtailed by your financial stewardship the answer to that question would be absolutely. You see, the fact is, folks, is that in my, and I just finished 33 years of ministry last week. No one has ever come up to me and said, I think that tithing is wrong because they wanted to give more. (laughs) Or tithing is not New Testament because they wanted to give more. In 33 years, that has never been the case. Two is, the stats that I quoted you about between 5 to 25%, is correct, even for our assembly. Well, the fact is, you know, I've, what about all the people that have left? Isn't that why we're having to have people, why we're so far behind? You would be surprised about what I can, what I've seen. It's the people you think that have the money are not necessarily the ones that are giving. It's just a fact. Now, I'm not trying to point any fingers at anybody in this room, but I want you to understand is that 
Giving and your perception of riches are totally two different things. God is asking his church to be part of allowing the kingdom of God to flow through us. As I was, as my wife mentioned this morning, we had this conversation. We we now have a new place to con, to have conversations, and that is in the hot tub. And uh, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of worked out great because we can't bring our phones there, <laughs> especially in the winter time. There's steam coming off, and that would wreak havoc with cell phones, and they have to stay in the house, and so. If you're trying to get a hold of us at some hour, that's probably where we are. Solving the world's problems. But I really, from my own per- perception or my own viewpoint of where I am in, in light of culture and society, because I, I sit on one end of things at City Hall and I sit on another as a pastor, I want you to know that there is this feeling in life right now that there's not enough. The, you know, the, the city of Calgary just turned down the Olympics. There's a reason for that. If you watch the news, in 1988, Calgary was going through a, a financial turmoil and they said yes to the Olympics and it just... But it's a different life in Calgary right now. There is a lot of buildings that are vacant in downtown Calgary. As a matter of fact, there even some companies are even paying you to go finish someone else's lease so that they can get you caught into using office space because it is so bad. I don't know if we've actually hit the problems financially as a country when we've said no to pipelines in three different directions. There's no place to take our oil. Our oil is now at $15. When they say $50 for a barrel of oil in, in Canada, for your northern premier crude oil, it's only 15 bucks. Why am I painting such a bad picture? Because I want you to understand is that what is happening in life today is not your source. It should not influence what's going on in your relationship with him and your responsibility to bring the kingdom of God. The same God who's creating $15 a barrel for Western crude, Canadian Western crude, is the same God who gives two raises in one month. You know what I'm trying to say is that God has a way of doing the miraculous with less. As Bill Johnson says, he sometimes can, he can win a hand of poker or whatever with only a pair of twos. It doesn't make sense. 
I'll tell you from my own life, from, from tithing at a very early age, being taught from my, my mother and father. There are times when we didn't know what was going to happen next. But God still used 90% of our money to do 100% of what needed to be done. You see, there's a point here is that Abraham got blessed by Melchizedek. When you're walking in relationship and in pattern, there is a blessing that God desires to give. So how does this fit into you and I's life? First fruits values. Do you set aside money as a gift of thankfulness and honor to the people who have brought you to where you are? Good question. Priesthood tithe value. Do you set aside a portion to care for the community who is caring for you? Do you set aside a portion to care for your own family and its well-being? Do you set aside a portion for those who have less than you do? Quite simply, if you want to look at it at a very quick level, it's a gift of honor, a tithe, a tithe to yourself, and then you, then you give what's the portion for the poor, about 2% to the poor. You see, that a lot of times we are spending our seed and then we look at giving at something that we do after we've paid ourselves, after we've looked after and spent all of our seed. Then we go, oh, okay, what have I got left to, left to give? You see... Giving has to be a little bit more than just the thought at the end, but rather a, a, a vision and a purpose for yourself at the beginning. I, I came across this really interesting article by a, a secular individual. He, he's... Um, and uh, it's in Forbes magazine. And um, he's giving to char charity, how much is generous? And um, it's interesting. Can I, I just want to read it a little bit to you. There seems to be an awe around philanthropy. An acknowledgement that is so fragile and precious that it should never be snuffed at Question, challenge, or told that it's failing to live up to its potential. One of the factors hindering judgment about philanthropy is the sense that the act of philanthropy should make you generous. He says, I'm not sold on that. The act of giving any amount in any given moment when it is not necessary to do so may, so may always be considered altruistic, but for generosity we need to look beyond the individual acts into patterns. The person who netted themselves 10 million last year 
to add to their 20 million they already had, gives 1,000 to charity. Are they generous? Not even close. They gave 10,000. Are they generous? I don't think so. 50,000? Nope. 500,000? Still a no from me. They are giving away an amount that'll be unnoticeable to them. They are giving without any sense of sacrifice. Religion has often helped guided its followers not just to give, but to be generous. The Muslim religion commands a donation of 2.5% of wealth, so this person would ex be expected to give 2.5% of 30 million, 750,000. The Christian tithe is 10% of income, which is the same amount as the Jewish tradition. For this individual, it would have equaled to 10% of 10 million, so 1 million. In corporate sector, we've made some progress. The 1% club is for businesses that give at least 1% of pre-tax profits to charity each year. That's what we see as generous. Above 0.5% is more halfway to generous. Below 0.25%, it becomes clear that however much you talk about it, giving to charity clearly isn't important to you as a business. It isn't as high a high bar, but at least businesses can benchmark themselves to some extent. So why don't we think the same about people? No one should have to give to charity. It's a choice. Generosity is a virtue. If we wanted to force people to give, we would simply institute higher taxes. <laughs> Generosity, as it stands, remains a choice without guidelines. Many who want to be generous are lost as they don't know how much to give. We offer them no guidance by shying away from frank conversations about money. Most people are so insecure about their own giving that they jealously guard the idea of philanthropy and generosity should never be judged but settling precedents, standards, and expectations about generosity helps people move from an approach based around to what's left to be generous with, to one that planned for generosity. Those in professional jobs tend to be particularly miserly. They may bring in a six-figure salary and then create lifestyles that depend on that resource. At the end of the year, those professional earners look at the way they can do for charity and they don't have to dig so deep to, they don't have so deep to dig. It would amaze most normal people to find how much most rich people worry about their money. It would amaze them to how few rich people would even identify themselves as rich. If someone knew at the start of the year that generosity from a $100,000 household income, which is double the US average, was a $10,000 donation, then they could make a decision. Will I be generous or won't we? Everything else comes afterwards. The fact that people who earn half that amount are more likely to find their way to generosity than those that earn double tells us that we, what an odd world we live in and the sad relationship most people have with money. It goes on. The fact is, is that Patterns are a part of life. And I'm not here to browbeat anyone. I'm just giving you the pattern. So I can't leave you just with have a nice life. <laughs> How do you start this life? 
Well, we have to put values into habitual practice. The fastest way to do this is not by following a rule, but by submitting your financial life to someone else. Yikes. But the fact is that we've done that here in this room. We've done the financial university with Mr. Ramsey. That was good. Matter of fact, I even have people that come to our church that go, I need help with finances. And I've asked them for their income and expenditures. But I'm a pastor. I am not a financial guru. But that is the first step. You see, if we don't think that we, are, we can place ourselves in a place of accountability, we will always think that it's, the things are okay. We need to understand that there is a bit of understanding where we're at so that we can excel and be at the place that God wants us to be. I am not a financial advisor. A health leader will give you counsel that you've asked for, but if you hide what you're doing with your money, you aren't really free. You're either scared of being controlled or you're trying to appear to be something that you're not. And we know how unhealthy that was for Ananias and Sapphira. How many know who that that was? Okay, good. Whenever we talk about values and principles, it's kind of like the shot in the dark. Some of you looked blessed. Some of you might be offended. Either way, I'm just giving you a full spread of concepts and values that will establish your calling of generosity when they're put into practice. These values are like setting out a compound interest account that God adds his interest upon the principles. People all over the world will attest to this. When they bring their practices into alignment with God's values, they see increase. It isn't because they're giving to get, it's because they become stewards God can trust. So here we've come the full circle. Generosity begins when we trust God with our money. Stewardship begins when God trusts us with his money. Can we hand these out? I have a little card. If you weren't here last week, I didn't take a second offering. (laughs) You missed it. (laughs) But what we did was we took what has been holding us back and we surrendered it to God and took a promise. And I am believing that God is already fulfilling those promises within you. But I would be amiss that after I've talked about all this, I can't give you something that you can take home and think about and pray about. So, on this side, it says the first fruits value, the priesthood tithe value, the tithe of, free, of feasts value, the tithe of poor value. There's questions there. The fastest way to bring 
values into habitual practices, not by following a rule, but by submitting your financial life to someone else's wisdom. I am not wanting to control you, so I'm not asking for <laughs> all of your financial statements of you, what you get, what you make over a year. I'm not asking for that. What I am asking is for this side to be filled out. In light of this side, that you will fill in this side. Make this a matter of prayer. Spend time with your spouse. Maybe you're single, pray about it. And make some commitments this coming year of what you can do according to these values. Can I tell you something is, someone phoned the church this about two or three weeks ago and said they needed something, and so my, my wife and her business forgot to phone her back, but phoned this lady back. And what they needed was, they just wanted a, a meal for a, a couple going through some difficulties each and every week. You get those requests every now and then. You get those. You get those who are in financial difficulty and need help. We have our own situation with what's happening in the church. And so, quite frankly, it is not left up to the, to the few to see the kingdom of God established and extended. If God has saved you by His grace, He's called you to be a priest in His royal priesthood. Therefore, He's called you to extend the kingdom of God. And I want to see everybody in this room blessed. I want to see that if things could get... If things got worse, you would still be able to smile at me and say, it's okay, Pastor. I'm okay. Quite frankly, is that whole issue of tithing to yourself for the feasts is important. You need to take... If you are spending 100% of your income, you are spending too much. When you get, you, I'm, you're coming into Christmas. You're coming into Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday. It's true. They've set those things up. So we're coming into Christmas, and you will get consumed by the spirit of mammon that will drive you to spend, 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 spend. If you do not take control of your finances, they, it will control you. So if you are spending 100% of your income, you are spending too much. If you will take 10% and put it into a savings account, if you are these people's age. You know how much money they can get in compound interest if they put away 
I wish my mom and dad would have said that to me. I can't afford it. Baloney, you can. Because basically, we need to understand compound interest and other revenue sources. See, I'm not just here preaching on tithing. I'm trying to get a hold of the whole ball of wax and say, hello, somebody, get a hold of the whole shebang and understand that this doesn't have to control you. You control it. Money is is an instrument for you to use, not for it to abuse you. There are too many Christians overspending themselves into oblivion and you can't do it any longer. Bank charges are getting worse. Visa rates are going through the roof. You cannot keep living like that. Please, somebody, I'm trying as a pastor to understand and to give you... I'm not a financial advisor, but... At this under juncture, I have to, I have to try to lasso the whole thing, <laughs> and to love you with an undying love that says, "Please, people, please, please, please." There's too many people that phone me up and say. I need this and I need that and where's the church to handle my situation because the church should be there to give and to give and to give and I understand that. But some of this could be preventative if we just did what God asked us to do to be stewards. There's something about when we take the first fruits and we honor one another with it it allows the Spirit of God to break yokes. When we spend time and we tithe to God and we give as unto Him, He can work financial miracles with 90%. As you tithe to yourself, you are building a revenue stream for yourself. And the poor... Well, oh, you always have the poor. Please, please, don't get like that where your, your compassion is ruled by, this, by a spirit of mammon.